Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbour no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man but honours those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money without usury and does not accept a bride against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Heavenly Father, we do pray for your help this evening. Uh, We're going to be looking at some serious and uh, sober words together. And uh, we pray that you would have hearts to hear and uh, hearts to respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do sit down. And uh, as you're sitting down, if you could make sure that you've got a a Bible open in front of you and uh, Psalm 15 in front of you. Uh, That was on page uh, 549 in the Church Bible, Psalm 15. Uh, We're just back uh, as a family from two weeks on holiday, which is a very good time of rest, um, both physically and and mentally in many ways. Uh, But I have to admit, I do find holidays quite difficult in many ways, a difficult time spiritually uh, for my faith. Uh, I don't know whether you find this as well. Holidays can be some of the toughest times, spiritually. Uh, You know how it is. You're out of of your normal routines. Uh, You end up doing things you wouldn't normally do. You spend more money on yourselves. You're perhaps a little more indulgent than usual. None of which is necessarily a a bad thing, of course. And uh, a good thanks for all those things. But but it sort of generates a a slightly unreal environment, a sort of artificial environment for a little while, uh, where everything feels better than it really is. And uh, my problem is that I find myself in that situation, you know, thinking about God less, and uh, then I um, start feeling too comfortable with myself, and eventually uh, taking then him too much for granted. And uh, every year I resolve uh, to try and do it better, uh, but each year I find it pretty difficult. And so now as we come back, uh, what I need is to, to do is to slow down and stop, and to reassess things. And uh, what's been very remarkable this week is that Psalm 15 has helped me to do that very profoundly. Now, you may not have just come back from holiday, uh, but let me say this. I'm pretty sure that Psalm 15 is going to help you too tonight. Most of us go through seasons a bit like this, don't we, where we feel unrealistically uh, comfortable about things cozy about ourselves and about how life is uh, without enough reference uh, to our God. And that may even be true if you've been coming along over the last few weeks. And if you've been coming along over the last few weeks, you've been looking at Psalms um, 11 through to 14, and you should have now a much more realistic view of the brutality of the world around us. Uh, So, for example, you've been reminded of the violence facing God's people, uh, the slander that comes from the world, the closeness of defeat, uh, the corruption that surrounds us. And uh, because of all those things and that realistic view of the brutality of the world, 
you can perhaps see the importance of finding safety in the laws, finding refuge in him. But the danger is, the danger is that you will assume that that's going to be an easy thing. You know, so we're fleeing from the enemies of the Lord. That's a good thing to do. We're trying to find refuge in him. But the danger is that we're saying something like this to ourselves. You know, I'm not like them. He's going to keep me safe, surely. You know, I'm different. In other words, even if we do have a realistic view of the brutality of the world, we may not yet have a realistic view of ourselves. In fact, it turns out to be very common, in fact, to have an unrealistic view of ourselves. It's quite interesting. I was uh, reading just recently, there were a number of psychological studies done uh, back in the 1990s, uh, surveying how people thought about themselves, and especially how about they, th- they thought about themselves relative to other people. Um, so the, what, this was one of the questions in the survey, for example. Um, how able are you to get on with others? Now, just think about that for a moment. How would you answer that question? How able are you to get on with others? Well, in the survey, 60% of people rated themselves in the top 10%. 25% of people rated themselves in the top 1%. And if you look across all the different survey questions that were asked in that survey, it turns out that most of us, most of us, think of ourselves as above average when it comes to intellect, looks, morality, and health. Think about that for a moment. Most of us think of ourselves as above average. And it strikes me that that's, I find that really striking, actually. It strikes me that is indeed the standard that we naturally think by. You know, we might think, well, I'm not perfect. But, you know, if I'm above average, then, you know, I'm okay with that. That's kind of okay. That's all right. And what's more, I will think of myself as above average, come what may, even if statistically that's impossible, even if it's impossible for everyone to be above average. And, you know, if as a result of that, I'm feeling okay about myself, well, then I'll assume that I'll be okay with God. Well, for the person who thinks that way, and for the person who thinks that safety with God is easy, or unproblematic, or natural, or automatic, uh, David, uh, the king and ruler of God's people, wrote this psalm. And as we pray this psalm, as we look through this psalm together, it should stop us short, catch us. Because what David does here is he gets us to face the Lord God directly. And address him directly and ask him a a crucial and very penetrating question. And you can see that question in verse 1 of the psalm. This is what David brings us to ask the Lord. Lord, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? And those are really very deeply uncomfortable questions. Remember, this is the Lord we're addressing in his sanctuary, his tent where his presence amongst God's people is focused. And we ask with some trepidation, Lord, who may dwell there? That word dwell is actually the word used of of living as a foreigner or an outsider in the land. 
So we're asking this. So who may come in from the outside, as it were, as a foreigner, and live with the Lord himself? Then, Lord, who may live on your holy hill? The hill at the heart of Jerusalem, on which the tent of the Lord stood, and then later the temple. The holy hill, separate from the wickedness of the world. Who dare climb that hill? And uh, so I'm drawn to ask, how can I, a sinner and a foreigner to the holy perfection of God, dare come close to him? As we look uh, this evening at the answer given by the Lord himself to those questions, uh, this is what this psalm is going to do. Now, So if you've been coming along these last few weeks and perhaps you have been persuaded to find security in him, well, don't be too quick about that. Don't be too complacent about that slow down first stop think about it or if like me on holiday you become a little too comfortable about yourself taking your security in the Lord too much for granted again slow down stop in either case consider the Lord and examine yourself Uh, and this is what this, this psalm has done for God's people ever since it was written But actually, that's not all we're going to see tonight. Because, you see, we know much more than David, even David did. We know the rest of the story in in the scriptures, which leads us not only to slow down and stop, but then also to start again, start afresh, start again in Christ. Because in Christ, and only in Christ, we can do this. We can approach the presence of the Lord and even live alongside him. So in the rest of our time this evening, we're going to to think about those two things under two headings. So first of all, slow down and stop. And then second, start again in Christ. So first then, slow down and stop. Slow down and stop. Remember those questions. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary, come in in as a foreigner, Live there with you. Who may live on your holy hill alongside you in your perfect holiness? Well, the answers to those questions all have to do with the actions and words which flow out from our hearts. Let's begin with verse two. What's the answer? Here it is in summary. He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous. Now remember, before we think about that first what the Lord is like. You see, the Lord is perfectly blameless, beyond accusation. The Lord is righteous and loves justice. What about us? What about us? Well, as we saw earlier on, most of us are banking on being above average. And not all of us will be able to defend even that. Still, we're hoping that's going to somehow be good enough if we ever come to encounter the Lord face to face. Uh, But I hope you can see even already, that is the wrong standard here. That is the wrong standard to apply to this situation. The standard here is blamelessness, doing what is righteous. And if we're still a bit puzzled by that and we want to know what that means in practice, what we need to do then is read on. Beginning with the last part of verse 2 and then into verse 3. 
Who is it who is blameless and righteous? What does that look like? Well, positively, it's the person who speaks the truth from his heart. And then negatively, it's the person who, who casts no, has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man. And again, it's very helpful to, to think about this in reference to what the Lord is like. Remember, the, the word of the Lord is right and true. He is always faithful in all that he does. But again, what about us? And let me ask you, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever told a half-truth to disadvantage someone else and perhaps show yourself in a better light? And if you never have, what makes you so different to the rest of us? Philip Jensen's a fairly blunt Australian preacher, and he was uh, preaching in the south of England uh, a number of years ago. And uh, he was reminding his, his audience about this truth, uh, that when we face this kind of uh, scripture, uh, we are just reminded that we are all liars, without exception. And uh, as he was greeting people on the way out, someone announced to him in great umbrage, in a very plummy voice. This is the south of England, remember? <laughs> Sir, I am not a liar. Which is a very striking thing to claim, isn't it? Now, I imagine what he meant as he said that. He said it with some conviction, I'm sure. But I imagine what he meant when he said that was something like this. I'm not a habitual liar. That's not how I think about myself. I strongly maintain that I am well above average when it comes to truth-telling. That's kind of what he meant when he said, I am not a liar. But again, I hope you can see that that's the wrong standard here. The standard here is, verse 3, no slander, no wrong, no slur. And then finally take uh, verses four and five here. Who is it who may dwell in the tent of the Lord, live on his holy hill? The one who despises a vile man, or, or a better translation might be the one who despises the one rejected by the Lord. And then the one who honors those who fear the Lord. The one who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Uh, the one who lends his money without usury, that is when his brother or sister is desperately short of cash, he doesn't seek to profit from it. And then finally, the one who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. And again, it's helpful to remember what the Lord is like. He's the one we're approaching after all. You know, that's, that's the reference point here. And what do the scriptures tell us? Well, his eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. The eyes of the Lord are instead on those who fear him. The Lord is utterly faithful to his promises. The Lord is gracious and compassionate on those in need. The Lord upholds justice for the innocent. But what about us? Uh, and I think I can just take myself an example here, that even just thinking about my recent behavior. I think about my attitude to evil, and, and often it's, Far too casual, 
Or I think about the way I should have been upholding those who've been slandered but haven't. I think about the many Christians in the UK who have been unjustly accused recently. Perhaps I've held back from speaking about that because I know it's going to hurt to do that. Or I might think of all the promises that I've made. Goodness, I make a lot of rash promises. So many of them broken. And it may be that, as far as I know, I don't seek to profit financially from the misfortune of others. But, but like many people, I do experience feelings of what's sometimes called uh, schadenfreude. That's the, the horrible, perverse, warm glow that we get sometimes. It flares up, hopefully briefly, when things go wrong for our peers, or our friends. It's a terrible thing. You know, and all these things, I'm not sure I can even claim to be above average. So that's what uh, Psalm 15 lays out before us. That's the, the standard, uh, the qualities of those who may approach the sanctuary of the Lord and live on his holy hill. And I think probably broadly speaking, there are two ways uh, that we could respond to that list. And the two ways are beautifully illustrated in one of Jesus' most famous parables, uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector uh, from Luke chapter 18. Uh, You may uh, know that and remember how it begins. Uh, These two are going up to the temple to pray, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the first way we could respond to the list of of the qualities in Psalm 15 is like the Pharisee in that story who prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. In other words, we could respond to this list by claiming to fit the description somehow. Uh, we could even twist verse 4 uh, to be about uh, not, not about kind of keeping our alignment away from evil, but... Um, rather an excuse for looking down on them from a position of superiority, you know, like the the Pharisee, you know, I'm I'm grateful, that, Lord, that I'm not like that. So that's one way we could respond. But of course, we know already, really, that's a pretense. It's an act. If we could ever believe this about ourselves, we'd be fooling ourselves. See, not even King David, who wrote this, was able to pull it off. Uh, We might think on a first reading that the Psalms are are kind of setting up David to be the one who can approach the sanctuary of the Lord. And in fact, there are a number of Psalms around this one, running on to to Psalm 24. They do kind of hint in that direction. So maybe David is the one who could do this and lead his people in that direction. But it's really not for very long. In the very next Psalm, Psalm 25, we find David wallowing in his sin, crying out for mercy. And that really does, I think, point us to the second and the only reasonable way to respond to this psalm. And that's the way of the tax collector in Jesus' story. The tax collector is very striking in that story because when we compare it to Psalm 15, he's the exact opposite of the qualities here. You know, he's a man who lies out of greed. He's a, he's a man who fraternizes with evil people. And he profits from the poor and needy. And he knows it. But the striking thing is that he understands this psalm better than the Pharisee does. Which is why he stands in that temple at a distance. He dare not approach. 
Jesus describes him like this. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But what, in the end, was Jesus' verdict? It was this. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified, declared to be righteous before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So then, this is the uh, extraordinary outcome at the end of the day. I admit that most of what we've looked at this evening so far has been pretty gloomy. Uh, We might have begun the evening feeling kind of okay. Um, Okay about ourselves? Well, you know, at least above average. But all that has been stripped away. Those pretensions, that act, burned up as we've contemplated approaching the white-hot holiness of our God. We've had to. We've been forced to slow down and stop. This is a psalm that should leave us feeling and make us feel inadequate, despairing, desperate. But remarkably, we don't have to leave things there. Remember the verdict of Jesus on the tax collector at the end of the story, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home, declared righteous before God. In other words, somehow through all of that inadequacy, through all of that despair, through all of that desperation, comes an opportunity for the humble to start again. To start again in Christ. And this is our second and final lesson tonight from Psalm 15. Yes, the piercing questions at the start of the psalm should indeed check us, should make us slow down and stop. But as we read on in the Bible, it also opens up a real opportunity to find a way to start again in Christ. Look with me again at the end of the psalm, the end of verse 5. David says this, he says, he who does these things will never be shaken. And let's ask another question then. Who is that person? We've seen already tonight, it's certainly not anyone here. It's not me, I can tell you that for sure. And I'm pretty sure it's not you either. And I've said already, as we read on in the Psalms and in the rest of the Bible, we'll find out pretty quickly that it's not even David who wrote the psalm. So who is it? Is it no one? Well, of course, you know the answer. There is one whose walk was blameless, who did do what is righteous, who spoke nothing but truth and acted with perfect compassion. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He alone stands unshaken, according to this psalm. But you see, Jesus, Jesus stands unshaken, not just as a a sort of lone example of of righteousness and a sea of unrighteousness, uh, but because what he did in his righteous life was 
on behalf of others. He died, he tells us himself, as a ransom for many. His death for others deals justly with this mismatch that we've seen tonight between our behavior and God's holiness. And now he stands victorious in resurrection life, exalted and unshaken and unshakable. And as we cling to him by faith, we can share in that life. Where there was uncertainty and despair, now there can be an unshakable confidence. We have confidence, says the writer of Hebrews, to enter the sanctuary, the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus. But as we finish tonight, I want us to see that that none of us None of what I've just said takes away from the the ethical encouragement of this psalm. I suppose if if that's the first time you've ever heard this, that that might be your first reaction. You might be thinking, all right, so it doesn't doesn't matter then, does it? I don't have to be truthful. I don't have to be compassionate. I can just cling by faith to Jesus and none none of the rest of it matters. But think about it again. Think Think with me about where Jesus takes us as we cling to him. Where is he taking us? He's taking us into the holy presence of God. Into God's household, as it were. Where God is Father. We're invited graciously there as guests. In fact, more than guests, as family. And it's knowing that that's powerfully able to change us. I think we probably know this effect in our own everyday experience uh, so let's for example let's imagine uh, that you've been a, a student in a shared house and uh, whether you're conscious of it or not you're going to pick up some of the ethos of that household if it's an untidy household I'm, I'm thinking of a, a particular scene in, in the film with Nell and I I don't know if you've seen that film it's a particular scene with some gruesome washing up in it then that attitude is going to rub off. If the house, on the other hand, is scrupulously clean and tidy, if we can stretch our imaginations to that possibility, if it's like that, then that's going to have an effect too. Uh, we kind of know this is true, don't we? You know, so when I go to a house where the practice is to take uh, your shoes off at the door, which is quite common in Sheffield, uh, I do it too. You sort of learn the habits, don't you? Uh, if this is a household where you know, everyone plays games every evening, then that's, you join in. You become a part of the ethos of the household. Uh, and likewise, in the household to which we have access by the blood of Jesus. And the ethos of this household is set by our Heavenly Father. He's the one in charge. And remember that because of Jesus, this is a safe place to be. It's a safe household. You know, we're safe from the wickedness of the world and the shadow of death. And even now, and even at the judgment, we're safe in Jesus from the white-hot holiness of God. And all of that means that this is a safe place to grow in the things that David tells us about in Psalm 15. In other words, can you see that we can now read these verses in an entirely different way, in an entirely different frame of mind? Such that instead of each point kind of convicting us, barring us from God's presence, they now simply set the household ethos. 
Look through them again with me briefly. Uh, Verse 2. Remember, the ethos. God sets the ethos and our God is truth. So how good it is then to speak the truth from the heart. Think of all the complications in life that that unravels, the simplicity it brings. Verse 3. Our God is for others, not against them. How good it is then to speak well of others for their benefit. Or verse 4, our God is perfectly against wickedness. How good it is to be with him in that. He's faithful in his promises. How good it is then to be trustworthy like that. Verse 5, our God responds to the poor and needy with compassion. How good it is to be able to pursue that, to be like him. This is how it works with our security in this place guaranteed by Jesus. We can now have a new purpose reflecting the character and ethos of God our Heavenly Father so that the world, as Jesus tells us, may see our good deeds and praise not us, but praise our Father in heaven. I began tonight with uh, some of the problems we have in thinking about ourselves, our self-regard, if you like. Remember those surveys where almost everyone thinks of themselves as above average. That's exactly the kind of thinking we're prone to, what we slip back into, given half a chance. Psychologists describe it as a self-defense mechanism. Part of our psychological immune system. But it's an illusion. It isn't true. We can't all be above average. In any case, as we've seen, it's the wrong standard to be using when it comes to engaging with our God. Now, I guess, um, if you're like me, you'll feel that slightly slow to let go of that kind of self-identity. We fear, I think, that um, if we do so, that it's going to lead just to just open up a a black hole of despair in our lives. But the irony is that if we do, if we do let go of it, there's a much, much better self-identity on offer. An identity in Christ. Our God-given personality remains intact, but all our sins and failure are taken away. In this new identity, we can be what we were made to be. In this identity, we are in a safe place, able to grow in truth and love to the praise of our God.